Welcome to the Off the Hook Arts Alcove podcast, a weekly dive into pieces by some of our beloved artists. The Arts Alcove features writers, musicians, painters, photographers, actors, and many more. We are so excited to have you joining us today. First, let's talk a little bit about Off the Hook Arts, which is a nonprofit based in Fort Collins, Colorado. Our mission is to provide free and low-cost music performance education for students in the community, while at the same time cultivating a love of the performing arts through public concerts featuring world-class musicians and interdisciplinary collaborations among the arts, sciences, and humanities. My name is Abby Jordan, and I'm the Arts Alcove Coordinator. And this week on our Arts Alcove podcast, we're doing something a little different in honor of a very exciting change coming soon to the Alcove. Starting this spring, we will be featuring students from the San Francisco Conservatory of Music, alongside our other incredibly talented Alcove artists. To talk about those students, the San Francisco Conservatory, and his personal journey and guiding principles is SFCM's president, David Stoll, with Off the Hook Arts Director, Jeff DeBernstein. We hope you enjoy this week's episode. Life in the Key of Curiosity Sharp. It is a pleasure to have you with us this afternoon. My I, pleasure thank, to join you. Thank you so much for, for letting us have this interview and for joining us in our arts alcove and including your students in this project that we're producing for Off the Hook Arts. I'm really grateful that you decided to, to do this. Of course, we're delighted to do it. I thought we'd start with just you having telling us a little bit about your background. I mean, I knew you, I met you at Oberlin. So, yeah. and I know you had your double degree major there and maybe you can talk a little bit about how that impacted your whole career pursuit and your, you know, how you approach life. I, I think that the, uh, I think one of the challenges and always respond to this question, especially for students is because while we urge them to think about career paths, um, <clears throat> it's very difficult for me to cite myself as a model, as I can, I can say with assuredness. Right. I, I don't think that I had a, a career focus in mind. I had a tendency in school to do the things that I love to do and explore areas I'd like to explore. I wouldn't even describe myself as a disciplined student at that time. I was you know, did well in classes I enjoyed and, and tend not to pay attention to those that I did not. So it really, <clears throat> I, I'm not a great example, I think, in many respects, um, relative to uh, a, shall I say, a linear approach to career choice. On the other hand, I think that what is fortunate about perhaps not an approach quite um, that undisciplined, but one that at least favors the concept of exploring things that you love to do, is that if you tend to do things and seek opportunities that make you happy and can reasonably assemble a living from those activities you move forward, I think you'll tend to make good choices and discover a career path that brings together the world that you enjoy. And I, I find myself to be in a position where I feel very fortunate that happened. It happened in large part because along the way, not just in school, but certainly during my life, uh, you know, important people in my life took the time to both mentor me, to both talk about the opportunities that uh, might well present themselves. And, and those conversations, I think vis-a-vis -vis serendipity happened at key points in my own life where I could make the choices that took me in a direction. So I went from I think uh, seeing myself as being a tuba player that was feeding my habit by doing some administration to being a really curious administrator, being someone who was really curious about the activity of it later and uh, found that to be an exciting path. 
So I, I think that life transitions in interesting ways, but I think we should let that happen without trying to restrict that process in ourselves because of some predetermined plan. I think mm -hmm. occasionally we can get in the way of ourselves and we should try not to do that. Yeah, and I think that you would agree that Oberlin just educates you as a general person and that the combination of being in the college and the conservatory really pointed you in a, in a direction that prepared you for anything your curious mind wanted to delve into. I, I think that's true. I think that, uh, I, I do think the conservatory study tends to refine your professional skills far more substantially in certain respects. Um, and I think that, you know, the world is a competitive place. It's one where you do need to focus and achieve. However, I, I, uh, I give great credit to the, the college um, in developing critical thinking skills. And I do think when you, at least in certain points of leadership, one would hope that anyone in a leadership position has the ability to stand back and have some perspective, both on themselves and, and on the work itself and the path of the work and to try and take yourself out of the equation. And I, and I think liberal education is highly effective at creating the modes in which we're able to do that. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I, I do think that ultimately there was a combinatorial effect that, you know, both skill sets became critical and certainly communication at the, at the pinnacle of that. And, you know, music is certainly a form of expression, but um, so many of my colleagues are um, actually uncomfortable speaking in public. You want to play Rachmaninoff third piano concerto any day of the week. <clears throat> I have to speak, stand up and speak for 10 minutes. I'd rather be hit by a bus. And, you know, I think that, uh, I think that, um, if, if you're going to be in the in the leadership business, uh, you, you need to be comfortable uh, communicating and working with people uh, and having the skills of, of both language and certainly the capacity to write effectively right. when it comes to... And, and that's the beauty of having that college education, which is so perfectly connected at Oberlin, which set you up, I think, for being the kind of leader that you are and were when you then went to Juilliard and then back to, to Appleton, Wisconsin, and then to Oberlin and right. onto where you are now. So as the president of the San Francisco Conservatory now, and you're right. facing your students right. and you're preparing them for a career right. as training them as musicians, right? have you started? And I don't want to get how too do far into with, this. How do you, no, I think it's a great question. How do you grapple with one's own grounding and instruction when you think about curriculum and experience and you're leading an institution and what right. what are the value of curricular choices that you make and uh you know that we have four pillars when i came on board at the conservatory this was controversial at first where i described you know our approach is a you know we needed four pillars by which we would determine curricular experience and that curriculum had to have a shelf life of 100 years meaning that any experience that we make a requirement should contain within it uh, a, a notion of developing skills that we think last a lifetime. That they're skills that, that lead to uh, a person being adaptive, uh, being capable of being curious and being in a position to become their own best teacher, of course. And music does. I mean, it's probably the most efficient vehicle causing you to become your own best teacher because you're required to listen and respond and to learn how to coach yourself through. I mean, private instruction, ultimately great private instruction should teach us that, I believe. But the critical thinking aspect I think is important. So the four pillars uh, are in order, artist, intellectual, professional, individual. And um, the, you know, very simply, the, the pillar of the artist is one, yes, technique at the core of that, but that it's about expression. Mm -hmm. That uh, storytelling is, must be key in music. We. You know, higher, faster, louder, as we used to joke at the Juilliard School, is not <laughs> the ultimate objective. You know, it may right, help right. you get ahead and you need to have that capacity, but uh, in the end, it's, a, it's a, a, a space of diminishing returns. The intellectual side is the critical thinking piece, and that's when we introduce a series of programs where we actually intentionally link academic courses across disciplines. Uh, we have courses encoding ranging up the Western civilization and through art history. But what we do is we intentionally curate those course offerings with uh, the programming of a given year. So if we're doing say late Beethoven quartets and chair music sequence, we might be starting the Napoleonic Wars, or you know, we might be looking at Europe and <clears throat> in the early part of the 19th century 
And um, we intentionally are bringing across culturally the landscape, say the composer is working in. So as students are moving from a classroom where they're writing and responding to the works they're studying, it's also happening uh, within the music that they're performing. And we have discovered that this most certainly has had an impact on creating perspective. Guys, I think at the end of the day, the most concise way to think about uh, liberal education is the ability to develop perspective over time on events, on oneself, on your activities, on your work, on the relationship of things within the world. And I think by intentionally drawing connective tissue overtly within curriculum, uh, we actually accomplished that quite well. It's actually a very efficient process because one of the things that also did happen in our world, it was a downside. And it's certainly uh, Ron Bishop would share me from time to time and uh, Larry Ratcliffe, who's now at Rice, would say from time to time, you know, you really have chops and if you just focused entirely on being a tuba player, I'm pretty sure you could win an orchestra job. And uh, it was an interesting um, comment. One, um, a relevant one, because I, I, I don't think it was inaccurate. Well, I don't know if I would have won a job or not. I don't think that the observation of what was necessary to even have the opportunity to win a job was not inaccurate. Um, that inevitably, the time is the time we have and how we're applying that time matters. And, you know, I mean, another example of someone who doesn't worry about such things is Jeremy Dank, who's, you know, traveling through Orbital and majoring in chemistry and becoming an all-star pianist, but he that's a, a rare, our... rare individual. Right, and he was you know. one of our classmates at Oberlin at the time. Yeah. He yes, was in our the... class, graduating class. So if you're, if you're around a person with those, that combination of abilities, uh, it, can, it can startle you as far as how much one can master during a process. But the other side of that is that, you know, that Jeremy didn't become a concert pianist for many years following Oberlin. Mm -hmm. I think there was a period in his own work where that aspect of reflection had to finally focus on that objective. So, uh, you know, the, the key is to say, how do you, in a conservatory environment, be sure that critical thinking is part of the equation, but not at the distraction of really focusing on music. And I do think that's achievable. It's a, it's a balance that we constantly refine. Obviously, curriculum has to absorb such a tremendous range of personalities and skill levels and levels of preparedness and languages, certainly and individuals culturally from across the world, that it's not a perfect science. But I think if you keep the principles in front of you, that's, that's really critical. The, the other two areas, professional and individual, are simply that you know, all of our students are required to take business courses, but we run the curriculum around the way um, the Stanford Business School uh, thinks about teaching people to run startups. How do you become a startup company? And we think of every student as being a startup individual. So that yeah. means you have to start your own company to leave and that's on a business platform. Everything that we do in this world uh, rests on a business platform. Whether we choose to acknowledge that or not, it remains true. So knowledge of business skills is critical. So that's a requirement now in the first year and that students have to then move to the aspect of the individual, which is a very clear space and a question that's, uh, you know, what, what is special about you? What do you discover about yourself that's most interesting to you personally? How do you pursue that? And then how can you translate that into your work? And uh, we, uh, this is a whole cloth swipe from winter, um, from Oberlin, I will say we instituted a winter term in January, which allows for this tremendous flexibility now of touring and internships. And we've had students, we've sent to Stanford Medical School who interned you know, at a hospital and, and while they're being concert pianists. But then we had other concert pianists who decided they were going to do nothing but live with the major concerto. Mm -hmm. You know, just every day, every day, no distraction of classes, nothing, very intensive lessons, very intensive practice. So I think um, the space of winter term for us doesn't quite have the liberalism Berlin, which is, you know, beer making on the beach in Bermuda, those kinds of things. I mean, not that that was a waste of time per yeah. se, Okay. But we don't, we don't see that in our continuum as being a good use of that time. The time we imagine is something that truly is about exploring within yourself something that you see as relevant for your immediate next steps following graduation and uh, to investigate that side. And if that's the kind of preparation you can do without distraction, which is also a standard conservatory curriculum also prevents that. We forget that. We are taking, we are offering classes, their lessons, their ensembles. And if you look at the composite grid, it's a very dense grid. And even students in a straight line conservatory are, are having these distractions. 
So taking about six weeks where you eliminate distraction and allow for focus is important. And it also allows for tremendous variability of choice for students to understand what they can do and do well. So I think bringing those four key areas together, the artist, the development of the intellectual perspective, um, the individual, the professional, is a, a concise way of thinking about the focused approach. And it's just taking liberal education, which is about, I think, a, a series of concentric rings that rise more towards a spire, perhaps, thinking more about a high, a laser beam-like approach that then adds concentric circles going up that allows for the breadth that's necessary without losing the essential mission. Because we don't wish to be overrun. You know, we wish to be Samson Conservatory of Music. There, there is an overrun, mm -hmm. thankfully, in the world. <laughs> But it's not for everybody. And, right. um, and I also created a curriculum where my thought could someone such as myself and say a Jeremy Dank and for others, just people who come through shit, could prosper in that environment. Would the resources be available to prosper relative to curiosity and disposition? And um, <clears throat> in the end, we have to look across a much broader spectrum than ourselves. But, um, but I think we also have to be sure we're being honest about our value systems or our leadership positions. Mm -hmm. If we could take a step back. Sure. When you were graduating from Oberlin yeah. and trying to think, what am I going to do with these two degrees? I, I enjoyed what I learned in the college with an English degree. And I truly love playing music, but I'm not sure that's what I want to be putting myself through every day and that would be the career direction I want. And you, I know you went to New York. Can you talk about the process of how you decided to launch into the areas that you did and then the path that I know you went from New York to Wisconsin and Ohio and. Yeah, I, I, uh, it's, it's, a, it's an interesting journey. I mean, first of all, as I often will say, so I used to say to parents all the time, you know, I graduated from Oberlin and I was the most unemployable person that I knew. I had degrees in literature and tuba performance. And for goodness sake, you know, how, how does one enter the marketplace uh, with these degrees? Uh, yeah, your poor parents were panicking, huh? I, well, I, I don't know if they were panicking. Were, <laughs> you might have been panicking. But I don't know. I, I guess, but, at, you know, being me, I suppose I wasn't worried if they were panicking or not, I suppose. But, I, you know, at the end of the day, I don't think so. But in my mind's eye, at the time when I, it's an interesting specific story because I'd left Oberlin. Actually, there was a job Oberlin at the Oberlin Conservatory, which early on that summer uh, I'd been approached about. And I was being an, an assistant director of admissions at the Oberlin Conservatory and then playing in the faculty quintet there. And I had been working over the course of that summer and staying in town anticipating this would happen. And that job had become available because the direct permissions at that time had been interested in another person who was in um, Interlock in Michigan and had not been interested in the job, but it turned out at the very end of the summer became interested in the job. And the director of admissions ended up hiring that person, which is actually what catapulted me to decide to come to New York uh, at the last minute. So when I ultimately moved to New York, um, it truly was that without a job and without anything other than think, well, I'm not going to stay in Oberlin and most interesting thing would be to go to the city. So I sold one of my instruments and bought a Volkswagen bus and uh, <clears throat> proceeded to come to the city and started <laughs> running out of money at the, at the speed of light, you know, with one horn left and, and had some brass playing friends and I was looking for a job and was offered interesting, a couple of interesting jobs. One was working at a, a photo bug when they had photo books, no one knows what a photo book anymore, but it was basically a, you know, a shop for developing film in, in Times Square. And I think the Manhattan School of Music offered me a security guard job, which was very interesting at that time. In any event, uh, which I was, I was prepared to think about taking either because I was really desperate for a gig, but uh, really wanted to find a place, a way to practice. My view was I need to find a place to practice so I can get a quintet happening and I would need to make some money on the side. So- Very wise. But yeah, my thinking at that time was I should try and get a job at a music school or a performing arts center if I can to find some space to practice. And it was a friend of mine from Oberlin, though, who uh, was the wife of a tuba player who graduated from Oberlin years ago, uh, Beth Foreman, uh, formerly Green, who happened to have left the Juilliard School and said, listen, I, I know there's a position, could I call the director? And she made a phone call. The director uh, at that time, when Carol Everett, said, sure. In fact, I contacted her. She said, what are you doing right now? Would you come up and interview today? And I did. And it was a time when Julia was beginning the Barnard Columbia Jewelry Exchange program. So as it turned out, 
because I had this double degree from Oberlin. She thought that it would be superb to have an admissions officer that came from the flagship double degree program at that time in the country to help guide uh, the entry of young students who might be ambitious to join that kind of program. Right. And being a, a typical Oberlin student, at some point I said, which didn't cost me the job, it probably should have, that I said, well, you know, I think it's gonna be difficult to integrate the two missions of Juilliard and Columbia. I said, it's hard enough on the Oberlin campus, you know. Uh-huh. Joseph Plessy, I actually shared that, I, that yes, I mentioned that in a meeting and, and Joseph Plessy, the president at that time, were very, very good friends today. I recall something he said to me, you know, at the age of 23, he said, well, that's why we hire these bright young Oberlin grads to work here so they can solve these problems. <laughs> <laughs> Well, he definitely hired the right person. That's yeah, right. Sure. Well, I don't know about that. But in any event, I, you know, it's one of those things where um, it was by serendipity. And then that's, that's how it began. Uh, from then, uh, the, we did form a quintet. It went to Aspen. It caught the attention of the American Brass Quintet. We were all in New York. Three of them were students at Juilliard. One was a freelancer. I was working at the school and also freelancing. And they invited our quintet into the American Brass Quintet seminar program which was terrific. We were uh, in that program for two years and uh, it were coached and was very intensive and that turned out to be tremendously productive. And I continued to work for the school during that time. Um, you know, it was a, a bit more of a, things have changed considerably. I mean, I don't know that that'd be possible today, but at that time, you know, Juilliard wasn't terribly concerned or many conservatories weren't about these kinds of things. Oh, this person's working for admission and they happened to be doing this, this seminar being in this class, didn't, didn't trouble the institution because it really was in every sense very much a professional school. It just, mm-hmm. it was a clearing house for people to pursue music. Right. So we just barreled ahead. And um, for me at that time, um, it turned out to be a, a formative experience. So I'm, I'm glad that it, it worked out the way that it did. But as I said, I don't think, you know, had I not been bumped out of the job I anticipated having an Oberlin, which is very disappointing and kind of bone crushing at the time, then it's fair to say that my life path would have been considerably different. And I think, you know, who knows what would have happened, but I'm glad it turned out the way that it did. Yes. So you went on to become the dean of the conservatory at Oberlin. (laughs) Right? I did. So yes. So So you you launched back home. Yeah, so I was at Juilliard for three years, and when I was there, I was going out to Aspen in the summertime, mm-hmm. and had a very interesting job. The first time I went out uh, the summer with the quintet, um, and came back, um, Juilliard was like, "Fine, you know, we're happy to have you come back." I was actually I had some a little bit of a background in computer science again from Oberlin, taking classes on the side, and had and was writing patch code for the early when <laughs> there was a VAX mainframe system. No one would ever recognize these terms now, but ended up. You know, the first early um, Apple computers coming out so that we could actually upload things like audition times and everything else. So it was the hero of the admissions off the Juilliard School, which is basically data processing, right? <laughs> um, so, uh, but I, I wanted to go back to Aspen and they said, sure, you can go back to Aspen, but we need you to work on behalf of Juilliard. You know, the one person who continues to admit students to Juilliard separate from the March auditions just invites them to come and then we have to basically accept them in the fall is Dorothy DeLay. So, Dottie would be in Aspen in the summertime, and my job was to staff Ms. DeLay while I was out there, in addition to playing in the festival and doing these things. And fortunately, we got along extremely well. Um, you know, I wasn't a string player, so what did I care? <laughs> you know, and, and I think she was bemused for the fact that she realized that I was bumping along and essentially said, you know, I'm just here to Ms. DeLay. She's like, yes, to, to look after me. I said, well, I wouldn't go that far, Ms. DeLay, just to be sure that whatever decisions you're making, we can make them official. So I had something I referred, I referred to as the football, like the container of the nuclear launch codes, which was the ability to enroll a student at Juilliard was in this little case I carried around. <laughs> and we would, at the end of the summer, she'd invite two or three students. And we would literally do the paperwork on the spot and admit them on the spot and get wow. this paperwork back to Juilliard so the students could matriculate as soon as they returned in the fall. It turned out to be actually a reasonable solution to a process. And I learned quite a bit. I mean, it's all of its learning experience because I started right. listening to auditions and I would um, be constantly, I think, being curious is, is key. Ask her what she was listening for and looking for in students. And it oh, was a wow. fascinating education. I, and one I, and I really I enjoyed. I think so. Yeah. 
Yeah. So about repertoire, and so it was very, it was quite interesting um, in so many respects. And she would ask return questions. What do you, what do you think, David? This Barter Columbia Juilliard Exchange? She would often say. Uh-huh. And uh, I said, well, Ms. Delay, I said, I can understand the uh, the interest of doing that. It provides multiple opportunities for students. I said, Columbia, I said, I think there are challenges with the model because of the separation of the schools and the two missions. I said, but I think it's a it's not an unworthy objective. And she said, well, David, I'll tell you what I think. If you want a double degree, go to Oberlin. <laughs> and because <laughs> she was an Oberlin grad herself. She said, Julia. she Field. really? Oh, yeah. I know she taught but, Stephen Clapp, who... Yeah. Taught so in she, she, and then, that's where she came out. She came out of Oberlin. And she said, but Juilliard is the Olympic Games. And as soon as we forget that, we lose our way. And I don't think she was wrong about that in many respects. I think um, that, you know, the BCJ program um, continues to this day. And I think students have benefited from it generally, but it's still a, a complex uh, idea. And in fact, we have assiduously avoided thinking about a direct double degree with a partner institution, because I do think it's a difficult enough proposition on the same campus with ostensibly those separate schools, a singular senior administration, meaning one president. Um, Even in that mode, it's very difficult to logistically and culturally administer. So um, I don't know that she was misguided in that Mm -hmm. observation. Right. So you had quite a few achievements at Oberlin as the dean there. You built a a really stellar jazz program. You added on to the real estate of the conservatory with new buildings and halls. And I mean, I don't even know half of what you were doing there, but you mean you really led Oberlin to a different level, I think of visibility and, um, and programs for the students that were there. Why? Why did you decide to leave and go on to the San Francisco Conservatory as the president? Yeah, it's a, you know, Oberlin was a wonderful experience and spent 13 years there, really, from 2000, 2013. Uh, first three and a half years as associate dean and became dean in uh, 2004. And, I, I, you know, was deeply passionate about the school and, and saw the real potential of Oberlin to be a much more interesting version of itself. Not a different institution, but I, I did at that point, I discovered ways in which Oberlin could truly prosper and it failed to, primarily because it was apologizing often for what it was rather than being proud of what it was. And it was very much a performance training institution nestled in a liberal arts college smack dab in the middle of the wilds of Ohio. And you know, <laughs> why do that? And the answer to that question for those who attend Oberlin is for really bright, curious students who wish to pursue music and have that kind of attention intensity uh, with a program essentially entirely focused on our graduates. You know, it's a retreat and, and the resources are constantly turned on for you and it allows you to explore and discover without in certain respects, the distractions of an urban environment. Uh, exactly. And, uh, without the distraction of a, uh, of a series of masters and doctoral students who can be really fine examples as players, but often are consuming those performance opportunities that otherwise afforded to the undergrads. So many people don't understand that Oberlin is just an undergraduate institution. There are no graduate students. Yeah, I mean, there are a couple of very small limited master's programs. I'm frankly not sure if they're still there. One was in music education. There was a professional studies program, which is there for quite some time, and a master's in historical performance existed for quite some time. I have not, in the last eight years, taken the time to see if they're still in the books. But at that time, they were. Uh, and and uh, to, But the key for Oberlin was to leave Oberlin. They needed to take the orchestra out and tour aggressively. They needed to go into spaces where there are many alumni and use the orchestra as a celebratory point and a, a point of pride for the institution. You know, just as a division one university focuses on its football team or its favorite sports team, you know, Oberlin was playing division one music, but that was also a, a hard sell institutionally for Oberlin because they often have a problem understanding their own conservatory from the standpoint of the board level leadership or the college. It's always been a source of tension, not out of malice, just out of a, it's an alien to us. You know, even though the college students love their conservatory, they never fully understood its role or what it was doing. Yeah, I think that's true. And the conservatory sort of would stare at the college and 
and, and more or less think, come on, guys, you know, this is about focus and achievement, not exploration at all times. You know, let's let's try and and put a, a few points on the board. And there was this definite tension of a professional culture and liberal education club. It's always there. It's the genius of the place, and like all things, it's the great challenge of the place. So the key to Oberlin was for it to own that, acknowledge the tension, respect the tension as being actually to the good and not the bad. But then to aggressively pursue uh, the kinds of uh, programs that they should have. Uh, to really prepare students to be successful and then harness the unique qualities of Oberlin students, creativity, uh, curiosity. So that led to the creativity and leadership program being there. The touring at Carnegie Hall and the rave reviews in the press led to a full on acknowledgement that the conservatory was a powerhouse, that it had you know an undergraduate orchestra could step into the stage of Carnegie Hall, pack the house and play a concert that any other conservatory would have to look at, including all those beginning with Jay in New York, and say, wow, that orchestra is playing at an exceedingly high level. And oh, by the way, it's all undergraduates. Right. You know, and not, we don't have any ringers of doctoral students who are basically professional musicians who don't want to win a job yet playing in all principal chairs, which is what normally happens, you know? Yeah. Um, so there was a, a, a strength, um, uh, an intention of marketing projection of the institutions. So that was one of the essential goals. The other was adding professional experiences to the curriculum vis-a-vis -vis the creative and leadership program. The third was to expand dramatically the reach in China. And then finally, it was um, emphasizing key programs that were strong but needed better facilities support and that, uh, support. And that led to the coal building, which at that time obviously would house primarily jazz studies as well as opening up spaces on the, you know, the second floor of the building that was going to become performance classroom spaces, it was a it was a secret weapon of getting the conservatory to balance against itself on space needs. And also, you know, an institution that had long fought for civil rights, the outlet for the ground railroad that was dealing with issues of race long before their colleges. Here was the jazz studies program in an abandoned gymnasium. When an athletics program at Oberlin abandons a gymnasium, that no, that's bad. So <laughs> to run a jazz program from the major conservative of the world out of an abandoned gym was just an unacceptable travesty. And it had been there yeah. for years. So I, I simply said, look, there is no other project for Oberlin until we redress this. And uh, it was surprising was still a controversial aspect just because when we were building buildings. So one of the things that had happened is we had to raise all the money that just didn't happen for buildings. That were usually 50-50 proposition bond funding versus fundraising. But the coal building had a requirement that all the money be raised. And development wasn't really prepared to get behind it either. So essentially, we were left with a couple of us who were going to go out and hunt for resources. But we wow. ended up securing, you know, at that time, in order, the largest cash gifts in Oberlin's history, other than Charles Martin Hall, <laughs> for a capital building. And that's how the coal building ended up being built. And it was a, a tremendous learning process. But it, it was a wonderful addition to the campus. It transformed the conservatory in so many respects. And actually bringing jazz into the conservatory and, and integrating fully those students in the life of the conservatory, I think changed it substantially for the better. And um, because it's important for those students to interact and not feel separate from one another. Improvisation, oh, sure. classical experience should be really a, a fully a full interchange at, mm -hmm. at the level of students and faculty. So that was, there were exciting projects to work on. They really were, and they were very successful. And, you know, it led to some great recognition. I mean, it, it went so far as, you know, we were playing at the Kennedy Center and other things, and we ended up acquiring the National Medal of Arts along the way. Well, Barack Obama, we stepped up and said, the Oberlin Conservatory should, you know, receive the National Medal of Arts. And that was a, it was terrific to go to the White House and, and spend some time with uh, the president uh, talking I've about seen those photos. Party. Yeah. That was an exciting, exciting period of, of life and uh, a great recognition of all the conservatory had achieved at that time. So it was enjoyable. But leaving that for SFCM at that time was very simply that. You know, it reached a point where I happened to get a phone call at the right time where the board chair here at SFCM said, I just got a call one day. Listen, we're going to be looking for a president. We have this new facility we built downtown. We think we can have the top conservatory in the world. We just need someone to take us there. And I said, well, I tell you what, I said, as long as no one says these two words, Juilliard West, <laughs> I said, I'm willing to look at that because the conservatory that we need is not one that we have. There has to be one with a curriculum that 
draws on these other aspects of what's truly necessary to succeed as an artist today and recognize that artists have to be storytellers, meaning they have to have a story to tell. And they have to explore their own humanity as part of their education or that humanity will not be part of their playing. And we are tired of concert artists who frankly are not inspiring us through their ability to provide at least some view of the human soul that is compelling. I said, so I tell you what, how about instead of the standard interview where I talk about how much money I've raised and my leadership style and my management style and the difference between leadership management and execution and how I build a team. I said, I'm going to come out and present you with a seven-year plan and give you a price tag. And then you can decide if I'm a guy. But here's the key. I said, you have to also invite faculty and staff. I said, not to the same presentation of the board, but they're going to get the same presentation. I said, not because they have to agree. That's not, I said, because many of them will not agree. I said, the board has to decide whether you're prepared to stand behind me when they disagree. <laughs> I said, because we are going to go there if you hire me. <laughs> you need to know in advance that yeah. that's what I'm talking about. Right. I was a tenured professor at Orbel and the dean, and we had just won the National Medal of Arts. So as far as I was concerned, it didn't matter whether they said yes or no, because I was like, or I'll work here and retire. And you know what? That's all fine with me. We have a lovely house in Shepherd Circle. Why, why move? Oh, right. So, so in effect, um, to the great credit of this board, uh, they heard and they said, no, we do want to do this. And the difference between this board and Oberlin's board is there were six billionaires on this board. And I said, you guys, we can run the table. I said, you know, beating up on conservatories and taking their students and their faculty is easy if you have resources. <laughs> you know, I said, you know, and I'm your guy. I'm happy to go out. <laughs> and turn over the apple carts out there. They're all my friends. I'll do it somewhat gently, but you know, we can go out and recruit the right team and, and build this model. I said, but there's this curriculum is the essential aspect of it. And we have to find, um, we have to find uh, faculty who believe in the model. And not all faculty do. So that's how it began. And again, strangely enough, we were confronted with the fact that the first thing out of the gate as well was the need for a building project. So mm -hmm. it was, um, serendipity that we done the coal building because the coal building was a $20,500,000 project. And then we moved right on to a $200 million project and 165,000 square feet residence hall and, and space. So truly, truly unique. And it's at the building is standing there now, you know, seven year, well, now my eighth year, we raised $125 million to date for the building. And we've raised, you know, about 50 million extra for the endowment. And now the board is headed towards a major endowment campaign to put together 165 full tuition scholarships because Curtis has 164. <laughs> <laughs> and their goal is to set the institution away from its peers. And that also led to the acquisition of Opus 3 artists because now it's about verticalizing the opportunities to send artists directly into the profession and have a bridge for young artists to be performing at the highest level in the world. And we're about to announce a trifecta link between Marilyn Adler, Central Opera and the Conservatory with that. We launched a technology program that was about preparing uh, classical composers to score video games and film and undertake sound design. That program is up 100% placement rate but technology is a required aspect of all parts of the curriculum for students. Um, and then we also partnered with the SF Jazz Center, which is the largest presenter of jazz now in the US, they passed Lincoln Center. Our faculty is associated with their, the SF Jazz Collective. And by doing these things, we were able to get our students on the stages of Davies Hall, the War Memorial into the SF Jazz Center, highly professionalize their experiences in ways that very difficult. We weren't able to achieve that, frankly, at Juilliard, New York, with those, you know, Lincoln Center doesn't cooperate that well. To this day, still has a challenge with that. Uh, wasn't true in San Francisco. Far more of an interest in collaboration and cooperation. And I think because it wasn't imposed by the structure of Lincoln Center, it was driven more by um, the board saying, this would be really exciting if we did do this, and that the senior level administrators were also excited about the collaboration. So those things just led to a, an interesting convergence of opportunities. So I think, you know, the attraction for me personally, the chance to be the underdog and build something really interesting. You know, I said that when I was talking about taking this job, um, coming back to Joseph Polizzi about his comment, that's why I hired young Oberlin grads. He said, he said, why do you want to work for San Francisco? I said, Joseph, have you ever wanted to work for the underdog? He said, no, really. <laughs> <laughs> You I don't said, know what fun is. <laughs> that's right. No, I just said, well, man, I said, you know what? You never really know if you're good at this job until 
you have to actually look at it and see exactly. that you built something like and you and you have succeeded you have achieved so i want to just you kind of flew by it and i think it's amazing what you did and i've been so curious about it and i've wanted to talk to you about this you purchased opus 3 management right which is a major music management company based in new york right yes and i'm only guessing as to why you did this and you know giving probably giving a launching pad for your students why why would why would you guess that we would do that (laughs) Well, because it just seems like a direct thing. I mean, there are so many kids, students that are never have an, an opportunity for a solo career or even a, a, a major touring career because they don't graduate from Juilliard, because they didn't study with the teacher with the right connections. Or, you know, it used to be that Dorothy DeLay and Gingold oh, yeah. at, at, at Indiana or something were the only people, if you studied with them, you pretty much had a guaranteed solo career. Well, a small, very small percentage did. The vast majority didn't. But, but if you didn't study with them, it was really it hard. It was very to tough to go lost. because, right, the New York the managers were deciding that, you know, well, we're going to be a feeder for this particular teacher at this particular institution. Right. And that's really was true. And, I, and one of the things, you know, going back to how to experiences shape your perception of the world, having sat next to Dorothy DeLay all those years and, and her talking openly about, you know, calling early on Saul Hirock, who actually founded Opus 3, you know, or the folks at Cami at a later date and saying, I've got one for you, you know, and yeah. you look at Gil Shahan, Ashley Sonnenberg, Sarah Chang, um, you know, all uh, of the Itzhak, actually Midori, um, these were all delay acolytes. And um, what I noticed at the time was that she had absolute control, not the school, over that pipeline. And I, I do remember sitting there at one point saying, you know, <laughs> maybe maybe the big bad Juilliard school should go out and just say, hey, we are a thousand times wealthier than you are. We're going to buy you right now. You know, and they, they, they could, but it never occurred to anybody to do that. <clears throat> but it occurred to me a while back. It's genius. It would, it would at least, well, I don't know about genius. We'll see if it, <laughs> we'll, we'll see that, you know, Choices reveal themselves over time. But I do think um, it's not that, by the way, and I've made very clear to our students, anyone, certainly Opus 3, we don't anticipate that, um, you know, some percentage of SFCM graduates go directly into management. That's not really how this will work. The, the real benefits are, are separate from that. It's that, one, there will be, you know, we were going to lose the management companies. I mean, Cami collapsed. Uh, the last remaining American-owned firm is now Opus 3 of any magnitude, 250 artists. Um, by creating an artist apprentice program at the level of Opus 3, what happens there is, is it's not a student who's coming out of a master's degree at SFCM. It is a global search for those students who may have won. And they're, they're frankly usually out of school, but they've won a couple of competitions. Like they've won Ben Clyburn and Leeds or whatever it might be, or the Tchaikovsky competition. But they're at that stage where they're not quite ready to do 200 nights a year, but they are ready to be presented. They just need help. And then they come into this artist apprentice model we created at SFCM, where they live here. They're fully funded. They have money for travel, for marketing. We help them make a recording. They are actually attached to one or two of us, three artists who co-present those two, like a warm-up band, frankly, for rock and roll groups. Like, hey, you're going to open for Gil Shom tonight. Congratulations. You know, Gil says, hey, I'm working with this student. And they welcome meet so-and-so who's going to play the Sonata for you tonight. Now, crowds love that. Um, and it's a great marketing piece. It's no skin off the presenter's nose because they're not charged for it. It's funded by an endowment at SFCM that pays for that person. But that person becomes an SFCM graduate by going through the SFCM Artist 3 and Opus 3 Apprentice Program. And what you see starts to happen is the rebranding of where the top artists in the world comes from yeah, emerges from SFCM. So it is not, I went to the school, it's that I got into their apprentice program that is linked to Opus 3, which is seeking specifically that talent. And the next things that come down where you do have the the, the options where truly SFCM students do begin to benefit are Artists often, highly seasoned and professional artists that are doing well and have major careers, the problem is it turns into a corridor. They're playing certain repertoire. It's very, you're very much isolated, frankly, if you're a concerto soloist or recitalist. 
How do you experiment with new ideas? Extremely difficult to do. How do you find partners and where do you do that? This same space was intentionally divided for, allowed for winter term. Now with the Bow Center coming online, the Bow Center has seven luxury apartments upstairs for guest artists. We can do gourmet cuisine up there. And then downstairs is this gorgeous recording studio that we can okay. do everything captured to release. And we have our own record label now that's coming about as well. So artists can collaborate, come make recordings, and they can use our top students and even some of these Opus 3 apprentices who are living here to collaborate with them as they discover new things they would like to pioneer and work on. That becomes exciting student activity that builds the fun of being associated with an artist like that, but gives the artist a crucible for creative work that is of no expense to them or the management company. So now the management company and managing artists can offer them this opportunity over the course of their career, which they could otherwise never afford. That becomes a tremendous educational opportunity for the students in those concentric rings surrounding that activity during winter term, right? So there's that. Then the next question is, what's our major challenge in the world? And that is how we bring music back to public schools in the US because we know through every study that the number mm -hmm. one attribute of a concert going person is that they participate in organized music as a child. Mm -hmm. And not just had a visit or saw a show, but they had an opportunity for lessons or a choral ensemble or an instrumental ensemble. Right. And I know you do a lot of that work in a brilliant way out there at Fort Collins, by the way. Mm -hmm. And uh, there are many organizations that do, but our intent is to say, let's use the Opus 3 artists as a bullhorn for the need for K-12 music education across the world in this country specifically, because they're often in front of audiences that have resources. So we can, during winter term as well, take our string quartets, our brass quintets, and follow an artist out to a place where they presented and do outreach in those schools. And then working with some of our very wealthy grant partners actually seed fund the idea of how do they bring music back to that community. And an example is the deterioration of box stores in the US. You know, there are all these abandoned box stores now because of Amazon and other online opportunities, these large retailers like Sears and Kmart are gone. And they've left these landscapes that are often barren. Well. Those spaces are great for creating mini performing arts centers. You can use a Meyer Constellation system to create an artificial acoustic. You can use Meyer practice modules to provide practice spaces. And an elementary, middle school, and a high school can say share one or two teachers that along with all the horsepower of online instruction we can bring, they can actually run lesson programs where students can practice in those spaces, perform in those spaces, a regional orchestra can perform there, the law opera companies can, popular music groups can get together there. And it begins to then allow music to return to the lives of children in these communities very efficiently relative to cost. And that's conjoined also with the fact that um, they then know that they have a much better chance of those students graduating from school because we also have a white paper that's been uh, written in conjunction with UCSF, our uh, partner at the Global Brain Health Institute about the enormous impact music has on child development and the, the stunning change in their trajectory that occurs if they have this experience. So that's a great reason for state legislatures to get excited about it. And then we are able to use Opus 3 as the front end bullhorn of that. And that provides opportunities for our students to do that kind of outreach in those communities, then also perhaps participate in starting those centers across the US. So as we began to stack this up, we then realized we also then have the opportunity for commissions for composers who now can be paired with Opus 3 artists to record works here for pennies on the dollar. And that means the commissioning of new works and the recording of new works can happen. And then those works are supported in performance by recitals and concertos by these artists, especially within the opportunity to draw more diverse composers into our world, more diverse artists into our world. And so then you see the totality of the management company equation. And it's not just what Dorothy DeLay was thinking, I'm gonna get a solo from an orchestra, is no, no, no. At a multi-level approach, you can create opportunities for students, for communities, yes, still to have the great artists who stand in front of these great orchestras, as we should, as we must, but also to energize a management company with a major nonprofit behind it, that they can offer management and lifelong career support and creativity to the artists they manage in ways they never could before. And by integrating our students into that experience, it becomes an unparalleled development opportunity. And then finally, it's that I think one of the things conservatories suffer from is stagnation. We tend to do next year what we did last year, and faculty can tend to fall into the habit of saying, that's not what we do. <laughs> and it's, it doesn't answer the question of what should we be doing, because that's not what we do typically. It's not what I want to do, or it's not what I'm comfortable doing, or it's not what I have been doing for a long time, and frankly, I don't want to change. That's code for covering up those kinds of dispositions personally. And those are understandable dispositions, by the way, but they're not 
acceptable relative to the primary mission, which is serving the students who are entering into the future and not living in the past. So we need to allow the past to inform us relative to excellence and craft and commitment to the canon and all the great things that it represents, but not interfere with the experiences necessary to prepare students for success and for the greatest opportunities in their lives. So Opus 3 is a constant window into what works, what is successful, what are the concert experiences that people are signing up for, are they combinatorial now with dancers and musicians and media and how is that happening? And if that is where the world is going, what does that mean in real time for our curriculum over here? By bringing these agencies together, it, it's staring at us all the time with its truth. And by staring at that truth, we, have, we are obliged to respond to it, which is an intentional attack on complacency. <laughs> So that's the reason, and that's also why I came to SFCM, because that's all, also an impossible thing we could never have done at Oberlin. And I'd reached a point at Oberlin where I observed what was right and wrong with the institution, and there were certain things I knew that I couldn't fix it without completely breaking it. Yeah. And I wasn't prepared to break it. Um, I spent a lot of time building it. So I wanted to build this in a place that I thought could really benefit from being there, but it had to be a place it was nimble enough to accept it as a mission. So that's why I ended up at SFCM. Boy, this is a long answer to your question. <laughs> well, what you've done there is extremely exciting. And I think it's a great new look for the arts, for music, for students, for conservatories, for higher education. I think it's really commendable what you've done there. And it's well, been do. just My a- gosh, with the programs you're running in Fort Collins, seriously. Oh, thank this you. But it's been a pleasure talking with you. I can't wait to see what your students do. I know we're going to feature a number of them on our arts alcove. I'm just, I'm looking forward to more conversations and seeing just how all of these plans you've put into place, how they actually come, what, what their actual outcome is and how they, what, what everything turns out to be. So. Yeah. Uh, well, we are too. And it's, I have to say it, it's going even better than we expected thus far, which is really exciting. That's great. So, well, well, nice chatting with you, Jeff. It was very nice talking with you, and I'm sure we will talk again. Okay. Take care. Thank you. If you want to learn more about Off the Hook Arts, our Arts Alcove, or if you would be interested in submitting a piece to the Arts Alcove, check out our social media pages listed in the description below. Thank you so much for joining us today, and tune in next week for another Arts Alcove podcast.